When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today, I'm speaking with Greg Vargo about his book, Chartist Drama. Greg, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. And, and this book is out in hardcover now, and it's going to be out in a paperback edition in March. Is that right? Uh, that's right. All right. Fantastic. So this is an edited volume. You, you, write, you write a long uh, introduction, but it's, it also includes four plays that were performed or published by the Chartist movement. What got you interested in the Chartist movement and in the role of theater within that movement? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's a long story because my first, uh, my first book is, is a study of Chartist fiction. Uh, so, so Chartism uh, was, was this re- really immense, um, largest social movement in 19th century Britain, for, for political and economic reforms uh, centered around universal male suffrage, uh, but, but it also had uh, this quite wonderful cultural side uh, that included over 100 movement newspapers, um, lots of literature published, I mean, thousands of poems and, uh, and many novels. Uh, and, and so I had studied um, that part of the movement, um, but, but actually my interest in Chartist drama um, arose when I found um, a play that had been long believed uh, not to, to be extant, um, a, a play about the Newport Rising of 1839, which was the, the last um, real mass rebellion um, in, in Britain. Um, and uh, a Chartist wrote that play, um, in, in the wake of the of the Newport Rising, and uh, m- most scholars had had uh, believed that uh, copies no longer existed. Um, but but uh, the Columbia Ware Book Room um, had a copy, and and so kind of finding that play sparked um, an, an interest, and in, in kind of and the more I tugged on it, kind of the the larger I saw um, Chartist dramatic culture was. Yeah, I, I was not super familiar with the Chartist movement prior to reading your book, and I was very interested in kind of the combination of very radical rhetoric and tactics combined with a with a goal that in some ways seems, you know, uh, I don't know, from a more left-wing perspective, kind of reformist, like expanding suffrage is kind of a classic like bourgeois right, and yet the the, the language that they use in these plays is like very... Um, you know, fiery class warfare type language. Um, is that one of the things that kind of interested you in the Chartist movement? 
Yeah, I mean, for sure. And and there's, I mean, there's a lot of tensions and, and contradictions within the movement. There, there are different wings of it that are that are more constitutionalist or, or more revolutionary. Um, but I think it's helpful to keep in mind at a time when maybe 5% of Britain had the vote, um, it was seen as a demand uh, to enfranchise all adult men um, that that had the capacity of potentially revolutionizing the whole society. And, and that was certainly the Chartist vision. Um, I mean, something like a vision for social democracy. They, they thought um, once uh, working people had the vote uh, that um, they could put an end to social austerity that had been imposed recently, cuts to, cuts to the poor rate, they, they can make factories uh, safer, they could guarantee people uh, living wages. Um, they could end um, kind of certain aspects of the British Empire, uh, particularly uh, the, the Act of Union with Ireland, um, and, and a kind of a whole range of ideas. And, and so the, the Charter, uh, which was this document with six electoral demands, really um, became shorthand uh, for a transformed social, economic, political, and cultural world. Um did they, did they achieve most of their demands eventually? No, I mean, I, I mean, I would have to say they, they didn't, um, although it, it, obviously history is long and uh, the, there is uh, universal suffrage in, in Britain today. Um, but, but the Chartists themselves were, uh, were defeated, um, were suppressed by um, a, a military force um, and, and other um, kind of ideological elements. Um, and so, so the, the movement kind of began to peter out um, af after, uh, after 1848 really was the mm -hmm. last hurrah. Um, I mean, the, the year of, of European revolutions with, uh, with whom they made common cause. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely somebody who always wants to believe that theater can change the world or can at least play a key role in social movements to change the world. And, and on that score, this book was really exciting to read. Could, could you talk a bit about how theater kind of um, communicated the ideas of the movement or kind of mobilized people uh, for Chartism? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's just really interesting that the Chartists had um, this quite extensive literary culture. But then on the other hand, uh, this is a moment when something like half of the people in, um, in Britain um, aren't able to read or write, uh, though the literacy rates are kind of notoriously thorny. Um, so uh, theater, for one thing, uh, is, is an art form that allowed them to, to reach more, more people. Um, it was also uh, really the, um, probably the most popular art form in, in 19th century um, Britain. Um, and, and so a mass cultural art form. Uh, but, but beyond that, uh, theater kind of had a special place as a collaborative art, as an embodied art, um, it was related to the political theater that, that the Chartists made in the streets. Um, that there were they they really were a movement um, in Britain at least that that developed 
uh, kind of elements of protest movements that, that we would still recognize, like the, the mass meeting, the simultaneous meetings that it, or rallies that happen um, around the, the country. Um, and, and so they were, they were performing a kind of theater, um, but, but I think that they turned to uh, actual stage um, as, as a way to, to have a collaborative art form um, that, that could think about what it means uh, to collaborate uh, and, and to form collectivities. There was a quite um, complicated legal apparatus uh, around theater at this time and place um, that, that prevented comedies and tragedies from being performed without a, without a license, but other forms like farces could be performed. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. Um, and, and so what's kind of fascinating about Chartist Theater is it is um, really uh, coincident with um, a, a major milestone in, in theater history, the, the passage of the Theater Regulations Act of 1843. Uh, so, so prior to 1843 and, and for really almost uh, two centuries, uh, there was a monopoly on uh, theaters that, that could perform uh, the, the so-called legitimate genres that, that you just mentioned, um, drama, uh, uh, the tragedy, and, and, and comedy. Um, those regulations were widely flouted uh, and uh, the, the so-called illegitimate theaters were, would perform uh, things all the time, would, would just thumb their nose um, at the, the theatrical regulations. They would perform Shakespeare um, under a slightly altered title or, or add, add a little song here or there and call it a burletta. Um, but, but nevertheless, um, the, there were statutory limits and, and uh, theaters did risk um, legal action um, and potentially up to losing the, their license um, if they performed uh, within those genres. Uh, so, so it's kind of fascinating that um, the, the, the kind of center play in, in the collection is a, a five-act tragedy um, in verse uh, about the, the Chartist leader uh, of the Newport Rising. Um, and, and so that, that seems to be making um, a set of cultural claims um, as, as well as, as political ones, like what, what should be the, the domain of, of tragedy and, and who should have access to it. And I got the sense that some of those cultural political claims were kind of specifically around Shakespeare. Like you, you talk about one activist who had memorized all of Hamlet. And it seems to me that like, there's, there's a certain way that that seems to be saying like, I am just as good as you, you know, noble person even though I can't vote, even though I'm, I'm not wealthy, I have access to the cultural heritage of Britain and therefore deserve access to the sort of political uh, mechanisms of Britain. Is that, is that kind of part of what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and really uh, nicely put. Um, Shakespeare uh, is, is kind of the, the people's poet um, for the Chartists. Um, and I mean, they, they do kind of scandalous appropriations uh, of him, though um, it, there's a, a column in the biggest uh, movement newspaper, the Northern Star, um, called uh, Chartism from Shakespeare. And, and, and they'll just excerpt lines from the play that, that seem democratic or maybe uh, sometimes that, that potentially endorse physical force um, as, as a, a potential strategy 
Um, and, and so uh, there's a real cultural contest of going on, uh, going on about what's the meaning of Shakespeare um, and, and also uh, advancing a, a set of claims um, about that, that working people uh, are represented on the stage and, and are part of, of the national culture um, and, and so uh, should, should have a set of political rights alongside those cultural ones. Another part of your introduction that I found quite moving, and I can't quite put my finger on why, is, is there was a note of one theater company thanking another theater company for loaning them their set to be able to, to perform one of their plays. Could you give us a sense of kind of what types of venues these plays were performed at and, and what types of audiences would have seen them? Yeah, so um, a huge range of venues, and there, there are kind of two parts I, uh, to uh, the dramatic culture uh, that I um, uh, try to illuminate. Uh, so, so on the one hand, uh, there's a set of amateur performances, something like 75% uh, of, of the over 100 performances I've identified um, were, were by amateurs, uh, just members of, of Chartist groups. Um, and, and they confront kind of all kinds of material difficulties. I mean, they're, they're people who are working probably 60 hour weeks um, in, in difficult conditions, uh, don't uh, have much money um, and uh, are able uh, to, to put on um, Hamlet um, or, or other tragedies or, or other, a, a whole range of genres, which, which would be interesting to, to talk about. Um, and, and so uh, there, there are a, um, a few accounts left of how those difficulties were surmounted and, and the kind of creative networks that were mobilized um, and uh, a kind of a, a, a world of mutual support um, comes to light um, in that uh, where, where you're doing things like borrowing costumes um, or, or sets. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, and, and those performances would, would happen in, in pubs a lot of the time or in uh, uh, democratic chapels, as they, they were called, in, in Chartist meeting rooms, uh, some of which were, were quite large, uh, maybe between 500 and 1,000 people. A few of those actually happen in commercial venues like the Western Amphitheater, um, which is said to seat 3,000 people. Um, and it was uh, uh, played, Hamlet played before packed audiences there. Uh, so, so thousands and thousands of people uh, were, were seeing this play. Um, but, but then on the other hand, um, and, and just a significant part of the story is uh, especially in London and to some degree in Manchester, plays were being performed at the commercial houses uh, that uh, Chartist groups, local groups would go approach um, working class mostly, but, but popular theaters um, and see if they could have a benefit night. And um, these are some of the most important uh, theaters in um, early to mid 19th century Britain, like the Victoria, uh, which is still around as, as the old Vic um, or uh, the, the Surrey or the Standard in, in, in the East End, um, but, but these theaters in working class neighborhoods. And that had, has really not been a part of theater history before. 
um, and, and the theaters were navigating all sorts of um, legal regulations, not just about what kinds of plays they could perform um, in terms of genre, but, but also in, in terms of theatrical censorship and the, and the politics of plays. Um, but, but that the houses were, were willing to open themselves uh, to this radical movement um, is, is really a fascinating part of uh, mid-Victorian theater um, and, and one, one that needs to be better integrated um, in, in what we know um, a, about theater history. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the specific plays that you include in this volume. The first one is Watt Tyler, which is by, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, but Robert Suthi, is, it, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, um, which was written before Chartism. Um, why, why do you include that play uh, in this volume? Um, well, well. So the the Chartists kind of performed many plays uh, that uh, just were were part of either a theatrical or a literary canon, um, and and so this is one example of it. Um, but Watt Tyler um, it, it was was one of the most performed plays, uh, and and it's a play with a, a remarkable history of its own um, in in the history of. Um, democratic and mass politics. Um, it was written at the time of the French Revolution um, in 1794 and, and really uh, in support of the, the French Revolution um, at, a, at a time when it was kind of very dangerous to, to do so, when, when there was a, a real repression of uh, British radicals um, who supported the aim, aims of, of the revolution. So it wasn't published at that moment, um, but, it, but it was uh, published in, in the 18 teens uh, when there was an upsurge of social movements following the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and and it's, it's kind of a wonderful story. Stuffy had become a conservative um, and the poet laureate um, by uh, the, the mid 1810s. Um, and he was um, furious that it was published. It was uh, printed by radical publishers um, and became a real part um, of uh, a, a canon of underground lit literature. Um, there previously had not been any known performances of, of this play. It was assumed to largely be a closet drama. Um, and, and so um, it's uh, uh, quite cool to, to know uh, that, that members of the Chartist movement kind of took it up um, as, as a staged piece um, at least half a dozen times um, in, in the 1830s and 40s. I'm so fascinated by this idea that these are people who are staging a play written, you know, uh, sort of 30, 40 years earlier by somebody who's now their political opponent. Did it bother them that Sethi had become a conservative or did they sort of relish the fact that they were kind of throwing his youthful radicalism in his face? Oh, def definitely they relished it. I mean, and, and especially the kind of original publication context um, relished it. There, there would be kind of wonderful epigraphs of, um, of, of uh, Sethi on the title pages, um, 
like, you know, where, where art thou fled uh, your youthful self or something, something along those lines and kind of paraphrasing it maybe a little badly, um, but, but kind of pointing out the discrepancy or reviews of it um, would, would kind of uh, say, you know, Suffy is, is a, you know, we, we now know that he was only going over to the other side as a spy um, and, to, and to report upon them because how, how would he, you know, listen to what he says about royalty and, and the pumps of court in this. Um, um, and, and then quote um, so, some of, of the play. Um, actually in Parliament, um, a uh, 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 left-wing or reforming parliamentarian um, kind of had in his pocket, uh, in his two pockets, um, Watt Tyler, um, and then in the other pocket, um, a recent uh, article in the Tory Quarterly Review by Suffy, um, and and he quoted both of them in the speech and kind of got going back and forth. So, so they they um, had great fun with that. Um, at the same time, um, Chartism was kind of so happy to assimilate um, kind of anything that that they could use in into their. Um, cultural world, and and oftentimes it, it kind of didn't bother them too much um, if uh, the the political stance of um, uh, contemporary authors um, in in what they uh, re republished, they, they they kind of had a faith in in their readers um, that that. Uh, that they would make sense of and, um, and it could could read the, those works uh, crit critically. One of the things that I found particularly interesting about Watt Tyler is that the the critique of the monarchy is very much like a class critique. It's it's based on Watt Tyler's experience of being you know overtaxed and and living in poverty. Um, is that sort of one of the things that would have drawn a, a Chartist audience to the play, that it's it's a kind of political and economic critique kind of hand in hand? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, 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 they were, it was really an inseparable part of, of the movement um, was an uh, economic agenda. And, and it was why the, the, the movement was feared. Um, and just, just kind of a measurable, uh, class differences uh, in in the, the 1830s and and 1840s um, between the the gigantic portion of ordinary people um, and a, a fairly I mean a quite small sliver of of who is the enfranchised class. Um, there's there's also an anti-militarism uh, in in the play uh, that that spoke to uh, the Chartist commitments. Uh, the, there were was a real side of, of the movement that that was pacifist and and that kind of uh, wanted to resist the forming of militias uh, that criticized various colonial wars uh, that that were going on in especially in, in China. Uh, that the first opium war um, and in Afghanistan, the, the first British Afghan war. Um, there's, there's a couple in, in the, the 19th century um, and, and, and of course, um, of, of course later. Um, it's also uh, the, the play is about a strike and kind of, uh, I mean, it's, it's about the, um, the, the, the peasants revolt, what's commonly called the peasants revolt, but that may be better named that the great rising of 1381. Um, and, and so it spoke to uh, Chartist wish to construct a, a genealogy for themselves 
um, and, and the kind of history from below um, that uh, so much of Chartist culture what was about uh, kind of elaborate public dinners where um, the, there would be an evening of toasting and kind of all, all the great heroes of, of the past um, would, would get toasted. Uh, really fascinatingly though, um, the, the play was actually performed right in the wake of a general strike that, that happened in 1842, the, the largest strike wave um, in Britain in the 19th century um, in across the coal districts and the cotton districts um, happened in, in the uh, late summer and early fall of, of 1842. Um, and uh, Watt Tyler's kind of performed in, in the, the wake of, of that. Um, so so the, the kind of political economic linkage um, is, is certainly um, uh, certainly a deep resonance. That's, as an American, that always strikes me about British culture, that there's just such a long historical memory, that these are events that are taking place 500 years earlier. And you read the play and you, you kind of get the sense that the author assumes that everyone watching it will at least know the kind of bare outlines of this, of this rising, right? Yeah, and I mean, there's a, there's a, a real tradition of ra radical history. Um, I mean, Thomas Paine uh, it, it, uh, makes Watt Tyler a matter of dispute after kind of Ed, Edmund Burke disparages him uh, in, in their debates about the French Revolution. There are, there are essentially a, a number of titles like People's Edition. So, I mean, it, it just sounds like Howard Zinn of, of, mm -hmm. his, of People's History um, of something, but, but there, there are lots of, of People's Editions. Um, and, and I should point out that this, that radical accounts were very often the, the mass media accounts. Um, Thomas Paine's Rights of Man sells more than, than any other book um, of, of its day. Um, the radical press in, in the 30s and 40s, the Northern Star is the best selling or, or at least most read um, newspaper in, in England um, for, for a couple of years. And, and they're, they're kind of disclosing the, the possibility um, of mass media markets um, to, to others. Um, so, um, so definitely um, the audiences uh, would have some, some understanding. There was occasionally kind of didactic functions or where you might have a lecture on Watt Tyler that, that precedes the play, um, or it might take place kind of at an, an end of a banquet, um, a, a, a theatrical production. Uh, and, uh, and in that banquet, there'd be other, other um, toasts and, and, and the like, um, other kinds of performances. Uh, you really get the sense that it's a movement that valued uh, oratory very highly and, and the, the spoken word very highly, even in non-theatrical contexts. Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of, it, it's funny. Some uh, critics have, have alleged that Watt Tyler in particular um, would, would be difficult to stage. And it certainly would have been difficult to stage uh, in professional houses because of theatrical censorship. Um, but, but some critics have said also, um, it's a play made up of uh, political speeches and, and that doesn't necessarily make for very good drama, um, but, the, but it might challenge what we think of as, as drama. And uh, for, for Chartist audiences, it, it did seem to be um, good drama. Um, another play uh, they, they performed, The Trial of Robert Emmett, 
um, after the uh, executed Irish rebel who, who led a, a rising in Dublin in 1803, um, the, the kind of set piece was Emmett's um, final address to the court um, and j just a, a long but, but incredibly moving piece. Uh, and and it, it, uh, it accounts of audiences' reactions um, are, are really extraordinary um, as you know, the, the audience is kind of re reduced to, to tears by um, the, the young Chartists uh, embodying Emmett. That seems from, from our con kind of contemporary vantage point, one of the most admirable things about the Chartist movement is their internationalism and the way that they kind of forge solidarity between English and Irish um, working class people. But also, you know, you mentioned their opposition to wars in China and Afghanistan. Um, how, did, how did plays like The Trial of Robert Emmett kind of help to forge those uh, effective bonds? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question, and I, I really agree that it it is a kind of um, really admirable um, aspect of of the Chartist movement when we um, in a, in our age of kind of right wing populism and and kind of xenophobia, which which obviously um, uh, has has made a, a a lot of inroads among, among working people in, in Britain um, and and the the United States. Um, the the Chartists were kind of confounded um, by how uh, to, to forge alliances with the, the Irish um, who had um, kind of their own traditions of, of, um, of rebellion, of course. Um, a political leader, um, Daniel O'Connell, um, was a who had had won Catholic emancipation, so uh, the the right for um, Catholics to vote and hold office, um, and and so it, kind of known as as the liberator. Um, but but he was kind of an anti-radical um, and definitely kind of anti-chartist, anti-trade unionist, um, and and so kind of his imprint. Um, made it a, a real um, challenge and, and kind of a domain of, of cultural uh, struggle. Um, but The Trial of Robert Emmett is the most performed Chartist play. Uh, it was performed in lo localities that, that had uh, um, significant um, uh, uh, populations of, of Irish uh, immigrants. Uh, there are actually advertisements of, of the, the play that, that um, I found um, for, from newspapers and, and that are kind of clearly um, pointed at uh, the uh, Irish people. So uh, there's, there's an advertisement that says, arise, ye sons of Aaron, your, your patriots are gone. Um, and uh, uh, so, so it, it was certainly um, kind of imagined in those terms. On the other hand, um, the, 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 the kind of romantic martyr um, who sacrifices himself um, as, as a young person um, for, for the, the movement and, and dies for his beliefs, uh, what was a, a very compelling story um, for uh, all Chartists, uh, where um, it, it was a movement that faced uh, repeated persecution. Um, it had had a set of leaders sentenced to death. Um, after the Newport Rising, um, though they were spared execution, um, uh, their sentences were reprieved to uh, a life in penal transportation sent, sent to the prison colonies um, in, in Australia. 
um, and uh, but but it had you know, many members uh, who who were jailed or, or transported, um, and and so um, kind of stories of uh, political victimization and, and repression uh, became kind of widely um, important, um, and and many of of the plays kind of support. A European internationalism. Um, William Tell is frequently staged. Uh, Wallace, the hero of Scotland, um, is, is the, the name of a, a William Wallace play uh, by uh, William Barrymore. Um, but, but that stage, there's uh, plays about the French Revolution that get staged. And, and so a, a kind of, we, we see um, a kind of trans-European internationalism um, in, in the Chartist movement. It doesn't enter on stage um, so, so much um, the, the anti-imperialism, except in terms of Ireland, um, which, which um, it was an essential part of, of the empire and, and certainly mm -hmm. uh, one of the most kind of important battlegrounds around um, the, the empire in, in terms of uh, the metropolitan world. And th there aren't actually any uh, versions of of any scripts of the trial of Robert Emmett that were performed, isn't that right? Yeah, that's that's right. There, it, it was never published um, uh, as a play, um, and it, um, it it was never published as a play. And so, what this volume includes is a prose version of the trial um, that was widely circulated, and uh, the the prose versions. Uh, do look uh, look pretty close to a script in, in a lot of ways. I mean, tra transcripts of, of a trial um, in, include testimony of witnesses, speeches by the uh, attorneys, um, uh, a closing speech by the defendant, um, and, and a lot of uh, direct discourse. So uh, I think it gives us a pretty good sense mm -hmm. of what um, the, the plays would have looked like um, but um, that that does have to remain um, to a certain extent um, a, a mystery. Uh, though, though we do know um, from uh, accounts of the trial uh, uh, um, several of the aspects of, of performance, uh, such as the, the fact that um, they, they tried to reenact the trial in, in, in kind of all its pomp and circumstance with um, uh, a, a platoon of of um, soldiers bringing him in and him, him wearing chains and appearing before for a judge. Um, and, and then certainly uh, the uh, final speech of, of Emmett um, kind of taking front and center um, in, in all the performances. Yeah, certainly there, there is an element of theatricality in any trial. So it's, it's very easy to imagine how this would, uh, this would translate. It's almost an early example of documentary theater. Yeah, and well, and the, there, there were something like 50 plays um, about Robert Emmett um, in, in the 19th and, and 20th century um, uh, plays and, and movies. Uh, Dion uh, Dionysus uh, Boussicot um, writes a, a, a famous version um, and, and he writes, the old lady says no, is this kind of expressionist play from um, the, the early uh, 20, 20th century of, of, about Robert Emmett. So um, a number of playwrights recognized um, its 
theatricality, um, the theatricality of any trial, um, but, but then also the poignancy um, of, of this person that, that knows he's, he's facing a certain death. The Emmett Robert Emmett was um, kind of immortalized uh, in part uh, because of his relationship with Sarah Curran, um, a, a woman he was engaged to. Um, and uh, it, it seems that he didn't flee in part um, but because of that relationship. And, and so their, their doomed romance becomes a, a large part of the story. Interestingly, un, unlike almost all the other theatrical versions, um, that, that doesn't feature um, in in the Turtis version at all. Um, and and it's, it's really the, the, the politics um, of, uh, of the, the case. And, and one can make the argument that Emmett was uh, sticking around Dublin because he, he thought another rising um, might, might be imminent uh, mm-hmm. and, and not, not just because um, of, of his uh, romance. Yeah, I, I, I love the way that these plays kind of upset all of these conventional assumptions we have about what type of people like what type of plays that these are, you know, ma- working class people in, in kind of a mass movement context, watching plays where they say, no, 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 we don't need a love story. Just give us the politics, <laughs> right? Give it to us straight, right? That, that's what they're there for. They want the speeches and they want the oratory and they want the, 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 the passionate argument. Yeah, and, and uh, three of the of the four plays are in verse, um, and uh, so so kind of what want this uh, elevated language and want mm-hmm. want the the um, kind of elevated claims. So one one of the verse plays is, is really a, a gothic melodrama. Um, so uh, uh, closer to to certain of our ideas of, about. Um, uh, Victorian popular uh, drama, though, though Shakespeare, honestly, there, there are a- accounts of um, Shakespeare plays at, at, at the legitimate theater where um, the, the pit and the gallery uh, sites where relatively uh, lower class people would be sitting, um, uh, being full and, and, and the boxes being sparsely attended. Mm. Um, the play John Frost actually uh, narrates the events of the Newport Rising, um, which is kind of an event that seems to hang over some of the other plays in a kind of subtextual way. Could you kind of talk about how that play presents those events and kind of what's what's the perspective that it takes? Yeah, so, so the Newport Rising um, is, is this crucial turning point in uh, British political history, certainly in the, the history of the movement of, of the Chartists. It's, it's the, the last mass rising in, in British history, as, as I mentioned. It's actually also the last um, mass treason trial results from it. Um, two dozen Chartists um, are, are tried. Um, the, the rising was um, an event in which uh, eight to 10,000 armed coal miners uh, descended on this coalport town of, of Newport, Wales, um, in in the early morning hours, um, likely uh, to to kind of signal um, a, to declare a, a Welsh republic and 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 signal um, kind of the beginning of the national uh, of a national rising, um, but kind of things uh, go terribly wrong. Um, I mean from of happenstances of, of weather and failures of different true, uh, uh, groups of Chartists to meet up. Um, and it, it ends in a confrontation um, with, with really a small detachment of soldiers 
um, who, who kill about two dozen Chartists and, and injure um, maybe 200 more. Um, and, and then the, the, the rising kind of quickly dissolves. It's um, a, an important turning point in the history of Chartism because there had been uh, kind of certain ideas about the role that, that political violence might play, that, that armed revolution could play. Um, there, there had been ideas that uh, the British military um, would, would never fire on, on British civilians and, and that, um, that, that the people could kind of easily rise. Um, and uh, th those are re revealed um, in, in part as, as naive. And so kind of moderating influences um, become somewhat ascendant um, in, in the movement who say we, we have to um, seek a, a other paths. So, though, though it's very complicated and, and there will be, uh, you know, uh, supporting a general strike in 1842 is, is uh, trying to precipitate probably another revolutionary um, kind of, of situation. Um, but, but at any rate, um, it, in that context, John Watkins uh, writes this play called, called John Frost, a Chartist play in, in five acts. And it uh, tells the story of the, the rising through um, the, uh, one of the three uh, leaders um, and one of the three Chartists um, sentenced uh, to death. Uh, and it kind of tells it as a tragedy a really kind of interesting tragedy because it's it's almost an aborted tragedy. Um, by the end, um, Frost is in in a prison cell alone, um, and uh, he almost kind of longs for the culmination of a tragedy. But but here he's uh, he's reprieved and is is going to be sent to penal transportation um, to a kind of living death um, and and a death that doesn't end um, in in prison. Um, and, and so he, he doesn't even get to, to suffer the fate of, of, of the tragic hero and, and martyr. Um, but uh, really, uh, remarkably, Watkins is, uh, at, at this point in his career, at least, on um, the extreme left of, of the Chartist movement. And this play, uh, his play, um, is a, a brief in support of, of physical force. And, and uh, it re really defends the rising um, at, at a time um, when it is kind of dangerous to do so. Another real fascinating aspect of, of Chartist drama is it allowed um, discussion of, of ideas that, that would be dangerous if, if voiced um, in, in speeches or in print, um, but the, the dramatic element uh, pro provided a certain kind of, of legal um, pr protection. Um, and it, I mean, it, it struggles with that. It's, it's difficult to make of the Newport Rising um, a, a, an example of uh, where armed rebellion um, might work, um, but, but it, it kind of wrestles with uh, the, the failure of, of the, the rising um, and uh, try, tries to think kind of what, what might be the, the, the way forward um, in, in the wake of the, the wave of repression the Chartists suffered um, after Newport. You mentioned the author being on kind of the far left wing of Chartism, and there's even a fascinating discussion between him and a socialist where the socialist is saying, you know, your, your charter is never going to, to work. We need to overthrow the whole system. And and the Frost character kind of responds, well, what we're, we're going to do is get the suffrage today and then we'll build socialism tomorrow, right? There, there's, there's a very close connection between those ideas, at least in that scene. Yeah, and I, I mean, so 
Owenite socialism um, is, is, a, is a really important strand in British politics, um, especially uh, earlier in, in the 1830s, um, but, but really continuing, I mean, from utopian communities uh, to um, efforts at, at forming a general union um, that, that are, are quite massive uh, to uh, experiments in having uh, different kinds of exchanges that, that circumvent um, money and, and try uh, to, to have uh, fair labor um, ex exchanges. And, and so just, just a kind of a, a real um, percolating up of, of different um, political experiments in, in the context of uh, Owenite socialism. Um, in the Chartist movement, there, I mean, Chartism kind of becomes this omnibus movement that, that takes on many different um, strands of, of radicalism. And so while it kind of typically uh, the, the leadership kind of doesn't express a support for socialism um, per, per se, um, kind of in, in uh, local uh, organizations and local activists, um, that there's a huge crossover um, but between um, the, the two movements. Um, and so uh, the, the play has this kind of set of allegorical figures who discuss with Frost um, you know, what, what would be alternative ways of achieving um, social reform. Um, there's there's a, a teetotaler, you know, someone who uh, preaches abstinence from uh, alcohol. Uh, the, there's an Owenite socialist, and, and then there's a kind of Whig moderate. Um, and uh, uh, John Frost kind of makes common cause um, with, with the first two, and and uh, uh, it kind of scorns the the the, the moderate who um, many Chartists uh, had felt um, had betrayed um, the the hope of reform when after. Um, a certain expansion of um, suffrage in, in the Reform Bill of 1832, um, they, they had kind of closed the door on further reform. Great, yeah. And then finally, could you talk about uh, the last play in the volume, St. John's Eve, which is the kind of, uh, to, to my eyes, quite bizarre Gothic romance with some radical left undertones? Yeah, it, I mean, it's, uh, so this is uh, the, the only extant play uh, by uh, the important uh, Chartist uh, writer and politician, Ernest Jones. And, and so kind of uh, uh, students of Brit British history might be interested in it um, for, for that. He, he wrote a kind of huge amount of poetry and, and, and some novels, published kind of many um, newspapers. Uh, but he kind of in his early days, uh, what, what he wanted um, very much was to be a playwright. And he had, had wrote about half a dozen plays that, that he tried to get placed at, at various theaters. Actually, St. John's Eve was, was placed uh, at two, uh, I think two different theaters, or it might've been this and, and another one were, were placed um, at, at theaters, but both of them happened to, to fail um, but before uh, they, they came to the stage. He's um, a kind of gentleman radical and a, and a late convert to Chartism. And, and so this comes out in uh, his uh, literary journal uh, that, that he, he publishes called The, the Laborer. Um, and, and it appears serially um, in, in that over a, a couple of, of issues. Um, it is, as, as you say, this, this kind of Gothic melodrama where there, there's a kind of um, Mephistophelian figure who's, who's trying to um, seduce 
um, uh, uh, the, the young hero uh, from, um, uh, from fidelity to his, uh, or, or from more belief in the heroine. Um, but, but what's kind of quite interesting, and, and this, this is characteristic of a lot of Jones's other work, uh, is that the, the male hero might not be that much better for the heroine um, than, the, than the Mephistopheles figure. Um, they, uh, that, that kind of the, the promise of male rescue, um, it, it, it maybe doesn't bode that, that well. So it, so it has a kind of fascinating gender politics and gender politics that, that are different, um, that, than a lot of melodrama and, and certainly that that's different, um, than, um, much of the explicit rhetoric in, in the Chartist movement, uh, which can be, um, very masculinist, uh, even though that there are, uh, thousands of women um, who, who participate, uh, they, they, there's still a kind of image, self-image of, of Chartism as, as a kind of heroic masculinity, um, rescuing women from the degradations of, of uh, social austerity and, and, and the factory um, and, and the like. Though, though they're, they're staging plays that, that really complicate that image, like the, there's uh, uh, Othello gets staged um, by, by the Chartists and actually a fundraiser um, for the wives of the victims. So for, for families of political mm. prisoners. Um, but uh, uh, but I kind of taken aback when, when you, you see that pairing of, of a, a fellow with a, as, as a play for, for the wives. Yeah, I'm not sure I would make that programming decision <laughs> if I were in charge of that benefit. Well, Greg Vargo, thanks so much for talking with me about this fascinating book. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about it. And it was great to read your very uh, uh, informative introduction and, and these plays that I don't think I would have ever encountered anywhere else. So this is, it was a real treat. Yeah, well, th thanks for talking uh, to me today.